We'll talk about fasting tonight, a text that is relevant for fasting, as you'll see, I hope, by the time we're done, is the last three verses of the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. In other words, every kind of food is taken away. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So the goal of Christian living to me is become is to become and to help other people become the kind of people who would experience that loss and say that and mean it. No food wherever you turn. It's that desolate. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And there's only one possible way that can happen, and that is if Psalm 63.3 is true for you. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Let's start with a testimony from Carl Lundquist. Carl Lundquist was the president of Bethel College and Seminary until a decade or so ago. He wrote in a letter to some of us called an evangelical order of the burning heart, my own serious consideration of fasting, the discipline, as a spiritual discipline, began as a result of a visit to Dr. Jungon Kim in Seoul, Korea. Is it true, I asked him, that you spent 40 days in fasting prior to the evangelism crusade in 1980? Yes, he responded, it's true. Dr. Kim was chairman of the crusade, expected to bring a million people to Yoido Plaza. But six months before the meeting, the police informed him they were revoking the permission for the crusade. Korea at that time was in political turmoil and Seoul was under martial law. The officers decided they would not take the risk of having so many people together in one place. So Dr. Kim and some associates went to a prayer mountain and there spent 40 days before God in prayer and fasting for the crusade. Then they returned and made their way to the police station. Oh, said the officer when he saw Dr. Kim, we have changed our mind and you can have your meeting. As I went back to the hotel, I reflected that I had never fasted like that. Perhaps I had never desired a work of God with the same intensity. His body is marked by many 40-day fasts during his long spiritual leadership of God's work in Asia. Also, however, I haven't seen the miracles Dr. Kim has. And then Dr. Lundquist said that in the latter years of his own ministry, he found a modified fast very helpful. He described it like this. Instead of taking an hour for lunch, I used the time to go to a prayer room, usually the flame room, the flame room in the nearby Bethel Theological Seminary, 
There I spend my lunch break in fellowship with God and in prayer. And I have learned a very personal dimension to what Jesus declared. I have meat to eat, ye know not of. Now, let's look at a couple of foundational texts for this remarkable thing that some know better than others. Some of you in this room have never fasted a day in your life. And others have fasted many times. And so we're all over the map. Don't feel threatened by this. If you're 50 or 60 or 70 and have never fasted, it's not too late to learn a discipline which I think Jesus taught to be fairly normal. Let's see if, it's, if that's true. Matthew 6, 16 to 18, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Whenever you fast... Now, I, I quote this one first because... Right after this section in Dr. Lundquist's letter, he said that the text that arrested him and drew him into this discipline was this whenever, not if. Not if, but when. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you, when, not if, but when, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So I'm going to come back to this text later, but here the only point I want to see is the foundational point of the when. I do think this text suggests very strongly that in Jesus' mind, fasting was going to be a normal part of his disciples' life, and it probably should be. I think there's an even more foundational text right here in Matthew 9, 14 to 17. It goes like this. Then the disciples of John came to him, this is John the Baptist, the disciples of John the Baptist came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Let's pause here. God portrayed himself often in the Old Testament as the husband or bridegroom of his people Israel. And so there is a very weighty claim being made here by Jesus about his own identity in relation to his disciples. He's uh, the Messiah, but he's more than a son of David. He is the husband of the people of God, which in the Old Testament was God, and that's not anything more than what Jesus is claiming here, I believe. As long as the bridegroom is present with them, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. So he, he's with them now, he's going to be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Not might, but will. So when the Son of Man, the Bridegroom, Jesus, the Son of God, is here, 
It's too good to fast. When he's gone, my disciples are going to fast. Now, here's a break, only not much of a break, and a, and a little parable about um, an unshrunk piece of cloth and some new wine. Now, what's the relationship? Why does he follow this word on fasting with this word on the cloth and the wine? No one, notice there's no, there's no link here. This, these have to do with each other. Fasting has to do with what's coming. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment. And a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the wineskins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is, is put into fresh wineskins. And so both are preserved. Now, here's the question. Uh, what's the old garment that should not have a, a new patch put on it? And what's the old, uh, old wineskins that can't hold the new wine? Well, the new wine is Jesus and his message of the arrival of the kingdom and all the glorious work that he's going to do. And the old wineskin is fasting. I think. I don't know why else it would be here. You got this old custom, goes back to the Old Testament, happened a lot there. And here comes the new wine of Jesus. You don't put the new wine into old wineskins, so if I'm right, then there's a tension between verse 15 and verse 17. Because verse 15 says, they will fast when I'm taken away. So I've brought the new wine. I've died for, I'm going to die for sins. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to ascend into heaven. I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit. It's a new day with new wine. So the, the old wineskins, if you try to get this into the old wineskins, then they're going to be ruined, and so is the wine in the process. Um, Richard Foster, in his book Celebration of Discipline, says that that, this text, is perhaps the most important statement in the New Testament on whether Christians should fast or not, picking up on this, they will fast. So what about the tension? between verses 15 and 17, assuming that I'm right about construing the wineskins as fasting. And here's my effort to answer that. The great central decisive act of salvation for us today is past, not future. And on the basis of that work of the bridegroom, nothing can ever be the same again. The wine is new. The blood is shed, the lamb is slain, the punishment of the sins is executed, death is defeated, the Spirit is sent, the wine is new, 
And the old fasting mindset is simply not adequate. So my answer is, fasting per se doesn't go, but the old fasting goes. And a new fasting comes. Fasting conceived in a new way. Fasting on a new basis. Fasting with a new mindset. So now I'm going to ask what's new about it. What's new about the fasting is that it rests on all this finished work of the bridegroom. The yearning that we feel for revival, for awakening, for deliverance from corruption, or for the mere presence of the bridegroom not merely long is not merely longing and aching. The first fruits of what we long for have already come. So that's different from the old fasting in the Old Testament. The down payment of what we yearn for is already paid. The fullness that we are longing for and fasting for has appeared in history, and we have beheld His glory. It is not merely future. We have tasted the manifestation of Christ's glory, and our fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not tasted, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying on the basis of what we've already tasted. That's what's new about the new wineskin. If you try to fast in order to get a taste of it, that's called legalism. If you fast because you've tasted it and it's met you and it's satisfied you by faith in Jesus then fasting becomes evangelical fasting, gospel fasting. It's just more, more, more based on the glorious free gift that we received through faith in Christ at the cross and the resurrection. That's what makes it not old wineskin or unshrunk cloth. So my argument is, the New Testament fasting that we will do when the bridegroom is taken away is this. Let's put it in my own words. The bridegroom has come and he's shown us his glory and his love for us, manifested it in his life, manifested it in his death, manifested it in his resurrection, manifested it by pouring out his spirit on us. And we've tasted that by faith. And we've said, yes, that's my life, that's my God, that's my Savior, that's my Lord, I am His. And you're saved by that, not by any fasting. And then, this bridegroom is taken away. He's not here. You can't find him anywhere in person. You can't touch him. You can't put your head on his chest like... John did. You can't ask him a question with your mouth and have him speak with an audible mouth back to you. And yet we long for that. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And that's why I think it says in Matthew 9, 15, then they will fast. Which means that the essence of the meaning of fasting is longing for the fullness of the presence of Jesus. The fuller measure we can have now and the coming of the Lord Jesus in glory. 
which is why on the first Tuesday of every month for now over a year, we have been doing what we call the first Tuesday fasts, which are centrally fasts for the coming of the Lord. How many of you have ever fasted for the second coming? Come, Lord Jesus, I'm hungry for you. And John Bloom, bless his heart, has written a great song. We are hungry for you, so hungry for you. In a dry and weary land, we are so thirsty for you. We sing it every one of our first Tuesday fasts, because that's the meaning of fasting. Fasting is a creation of a hunger at the physical level that you then transpose into a spiritual offering to God and say, this much, oh God, this much, I want you. And it can be for a lot of practical things like I want you for my marriage, I want you for my lost child, I want you for my colleagues at work, I want you for my health, I want you for whatever. I'd love to tell you a story about John MacArthur who uh, a lot of people think of just kind of a hard-nosed Bible expositor who doesn't do things like fasting. That's not true. He's not hard-nosed or or uh, against fasting. And when his boy had a brain tumor, I think it was, or they didn't know what it was, he fasted long, and the Lord released him from it one night. And he tells the story about how in the very moment when the Lord just released him, he says, it's okay. A, a woman knocked on his door. This is late at night, about 9 o'clock. And she says, I'm, I'm going by, and I didn't eat my lunch today, and I just thought you might want it. That's John MacArthur telling a story like that. The newness of fasting is this. I'll put it again. Its, its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence. you got to taste it first. You can't fast your way into salvation. But because we have tasted it so wonderfully by His Spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of joy arrives. So what do we long for and experience in this new fasting? I'll go back to this text now in Matthew 6. Let's look at another part of it. 6.16 When you fast, don't look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men. Now, I do not think this rules out corporate fasting. I'll show you a text on corporate fasting in a minute. But it does rule out fasting to be seen. Motive is the issue here. It's okay for people to know you're fasting. It's not okay for you to want them to know you're fasting. This is a big difference. And when we're doing the corporate fast, your wife, roommate, they got to know. You didn't eat breakfast. And you're... Somebody's going to know. You can't keep fasting secret if you fast for a day or two or three. Just What about writing a book on it, sharing your experiences about it? I think that can probably be done. I wrote a book on it. <laughs> I didn't talk too much about my experience. I think that's what you're asking. Um, 
There's a line there. We all we all know it's a it's a difficult issue. You, and it's not just fasting. It's talking about any of your spiritual experiences, right? There are three issues in in Matthew six, not just one. There's doing doing your alms to be seen by men. There's praying to be seen by men. There's fasting to be seen by men. Well, the alms cannot be kept secret. If you give alms to somebody, they know you've given it. But it says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So do it so silently that. Yeah, somebody's going to know you're doing, but you don't. You're saying, "Here's my money," you know. Take your. So I think we we can, we know there's a motive issue here, and lets us all search our hearts. And when we talk about it and talk about our own experiences, only God knows, perhaps, and you, whether you're doing it from the wrong motive. But here's what I want you to see. That your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. What are you after here? You're after a reward, but on the way to that reward, which is God, I think, all that God is for you in Jesus is the way I'd sum up the reward, however it might be manifest practically as well. But what I want you to see here is this. I'll tell you, when you're doing, when you're venturing some new spiritual disciplines, you're trying to read your Bible faithfully, or you're trying to pray faithfully, or you're trying to keep a journal faithfully, or you're trying to fast, or you're trying to um, witness or something, and and you're 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 getting some success at it. The temptation for wanting people to know what you're doing is huge. To want people to know that you fasted for a few days. It's huge. And at, at those moments, you get tested on one main thing. Is God real to you? Is, is God looking down upon you as a person from heaven and drawing near to you and putting his arm on your shoulder and saying, I'm with you in this, I'm ministering to you in this, and I'm loving you in this, enough! Or do you feel like, I've got to tell somebody so that they'll praise me. It's a huge temptation. Jesus wouldn't have dealt with it here like he does three times over if it weren't huge. So really, the test in quiet fasting is a test of whether you're after God. Whether God's enough. Whether this is a God issue or a man issue. And if it's a God issue, then you're being satisfied by God. He knows. He's drawing near. He delights in this hunger that I'm offering Him. And that's enough. And the degree to which you feel content in that shows you how much He's your portion. He's your bread. He's your drink. And the degree to which you feel the strong desire that others know you're praying and know you're fasting and know you're doing alms and know shows how utterly worldly you are. A second-hander, man. Repentance. Question is, what's the response at that point? Is to cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this insidious man-centered desire? We talked about this last time. 
that everybody is wired this way. The desire for human praise is about as endemic as you can get, which is why I do not like very much evangelistic approaches that exploit it. Because it is tapping into one of the most insidious and destructive and spiritually weakening forces in our lives. Namely, to be known as somebody great. Great in our spirituality. Everybody likes applause. Everybody likes compliments. And there's a whole philosophy of child rearing, a whole philosophy of education, a whole philosophy of psychological health that says, feed that. Well, there's, there's a biblical way, and that's not it. Because these texts here say, mortify that. Let God be that for you. Let God draw near and say, I'm with you. I'm what you need. You'll need the praise of men. I'm your portion here. And so I, I think fasting, oh. There are so many sins that get exposed through fasting. I mean, the most obvious is lack of discipline. The most obvious is bondage to food. But anger is another one. Boy, you want to see how short your fuse really is? Skip about four meals. <laughs> drink water. Don't, don't skip water, but just drink. And your fuse will get shorter and shorter, and you're wondering... So, it really is food that has been sanctifying me, and not Jesus. It's a devastating thing to see what you discover when you fast. To watch your very body move against you. And there are many other things, like the praise of men. That's the one I was focusing on. Oh, that somebody would know it's been a whole day, or three days, or 39 days. Oh, that somebody would know this. And that's the danger that Justin was pointing out in writing a book about your experience is very dangerous. Here's another thing we're after. We're not just after, well, another way of saying the same thing. Let's look at it here. Acts 13, 1 to 3. This, this is important because this fasting that we're going to read about here was done after Christ's departure, because one of the possible arguments from Matthew 9.15 was when the bridegroom is taken away, then you will fast, would mean taken away in death, so fast between Good Friday and Easter. I don't think that's what it means. I think when the bridegroom is taken away, it means when he goes back to heaven. You will fast. So they're fasting here long after he's gone back to heaven. It's not as though you fast for three days while he's in the tomb because you're grieving. And now he's back by the power of the Holy Spirit and it's party time until Jesus comes. That's not the image there in that story at all. There is a sense of yearning, longing, aching in the absence of King Jesus, even though we have him present by the Holy Spirit. We groan inwardly, awaiting our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. More, more, more is the heart cry of every true Christian. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, 
uh, Manan, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So notice worshiping and fasting. The theme of this course is communion with God. Communion with God, drawing near to God, getting close to God, feeding on God, tasting God. So they are worshiping God and fasting. So somehow or other in their mind, fasting would make worshiping better. The Holy Spirit said during this time, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after here they do it again, fasting and praying. So there's another link up, worshiping and fasting and praying and fasting. They fast and they pray when they lay their hands on them and send them off. So there's something about fasting years after Jesus has gone back to heaven when you are about to do something really remarkable and send out a Saul and a Barnabas on a venture that has not been undertaken yet, namely the expansion of the gospel into Asia Minor. And uh, they fasted with praying, and then they put their hands on them. And I think the reason for that is that fasting strips away your reliance upon the comforts and pleasures of food, causes you to take that discomfort and that yearning that you're feeling and do something else with it besides slake it with food, namely direct it towards God through prayer, and thus it intensifies the longing. That's what it's supposed to do. You say to God, I not only say I long for you, I not only feel in my spirit I long for you, I'm telling my body you can't have this because I'm going to make you long and then I'm going to make you a servant of this prayer. That's how much I long for you and want for you to bless Barnabas and Saul as they go. It's a bodily intensifier of a spiritual hunger. The essence of fasting then, as I understand it, is a hunger for God. So let me just show you why this idea of hunger for God is so biblical. We'll just pile up a few texts here and then make some concluding observations. Revelation 21.6, Then God said to John, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without costs. Without cost. What's the qualification for getting the water of life? Tell me. In this verse, thirst. I will give to the one who thirsts. And that's true on through life. It's a sad, sad day. Really sad. When Christians become satisfied with the way they are, or their church is, or their family is. Satisfied Christians, that is, with their circumstances, their own life, their marriage, their job. Satisfied Christians are in danger. The only satisfaction that should be complete 
is satisfaction in God. And we don't have all of God that we need. We don't love Him all that we should. We don't trust Him all that we should. We don't obey Him all that we should. Our lives are incomplete, big time, from what they should be in the experience of God. And therefore, we should not be satisfied, but ever yearning, ever questing, ever pursuing. I've got a, one of my little chapters in A God Where Life is called More, More, More. And I just collected all the verses in the New Testament where Paul is saying that you might abound more and more. He compliments them for where they are to encourage them. And he says, oh, that you might abound more and more in your love for one another. Abound more in your faith. Abound more in your hope. Contented Christians who don't cry out much for more are in danger and are spiritually sick. When you lose your appetite, you're sick physically and you're sick spiritually. Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I love this verse. Uh, I memorized Isaiah 55 one time. And... Uh, these verses are some of the reason. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come by and eat. Bankrupt people only allowed. Come buy wine. The great paradox. I think I've got another little article called How to Buy Gold When You're Broke. It's that's it right there. Only this is food, not gold. The gold comes from Revelation where you're blind and naked and poor and he holds out gold to you. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You can't get this any other way than, than just receiving, just hunger. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Bread is not bread. Bread is not bread. And that, and your wages for what doesn't satisfy. Bread does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundance. Incline your ear. So this is how you eat. Listen to me. Incline your ear to me. This is the eating that he's talking about. And come to me. Listen. That your soul may live, that will give you life. This bread will satisfy. The bread that comes down from heaven, Jesus mediated through his word, will satisfy. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the faithful mercy shown to David. The very mercy shown to King David will be shown to you if you come broken, empty, bankrupt, hungry, and thirsty. And turn away from the white bread of the world and all the... Drink of the world and say, you are all I need and want. Jesus, in John 6, answered them and said, 626, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled, the loaves and fishes. And here you are trying to get more. Do not work... For the food that perishes, 
It's the same bread here. It's food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. Therefore, they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? So He said, Don't work. Don't work. Don't work for this food that perishes. And they say, Well, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said to them, This is the work of God. Believe in him whom he has sent. And believe in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Who comes to me shall not hunger. And who believes in me shall never thirst. Believing in John is a coming to Jesus to eat all that he is for us. Unto satisfaction. Don't don't labor for the food that perishes. Labor that is believe for the food that endures to eternal life. Psalm sixty three three one to three. O God, you are my God, I I seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where no water is. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. And if it's better than life, it's better than food. And if we're going to experience it, it's better than life so that we don't get angry at him when we die or lose a loved one, it would be good to practice dying now and test ourselves. There are some more verses, but I will read you a concluding statement. Bread magnifies Christ in two ways. By being eaten with gratitude for His goodness and by being forfeited out of hunger for God Himself. When we eat, we taste the emblem of our heavenly food, the bread of life. And when we fast, we say, I love the reality above the emblem. And so I would just ask you, do you? Do you love the reality above the emblem? In the heart of the saint, both eating and fasting are worship. Should be. Both eating and fasting magnify Christ. Both send the heart grateful and yearning to the giver. Each has its appointed place and each has its danger. The danger of eating is that we fall in love with the gift. And the danger of fasting is that we belittle the gift and glory in our willpower. Final, I'll read this one and I'll be done. Fasting is peculiarly suited to glorify God. It is fundamentally an offering of emptiness to God in hope. It is a sacrifice of need, of hunger. It says by its very nature, Father, I'm empty. 
but you are full. I'm hungry, but you are the bread of life. I'm thirsty, but you are the fountain of life. I'm weak, but you are strong. I'm poor, but you are rich. I'm foolish, but you are wise. I'm broken, but you are whole. I'm dying, but your steadfast love is better than life. When God sees this confession of need and this expression of trust, He acts because the glory of His all-sufficient grace is at stake. The final answer is that God rewards fasting because fasting expresses the cry of the heart that nothing on earth can satisfy our souls besides God. God must reward this cry because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. I have three sets of overheads here that I could fill up our time with, but I'm inclined to think we should take some significant time for you to ask questions about the whole array of practical and theological biblical issues relating to prayer, meditation, and fasting. And uh, you can be thinking about uh, questions that you'd like to ask, and uh, we'll just see how that goes. If it slows down or becomes unhelpful, then we'll retreat to the overheads. But I think I've said the basics of what I want to say. And you can, of course, talk forever about prayer and forever about meditating on the Bible and forever about fasting. And so we might as well stop sometime and we'll see how that goes. Raise your hand and ask me a question. And be the one that gets it going here. I'll move around here. Hold my Bible as a security blanket in my hand here. What, what types of thoughts should go through our head? What should the attitude of our heart be? What should we think when we feel hunger? The question is, on days of fasting, if you set aside a day for fasting, what kinds of thoughts should go for, through our head? What, what should we do with our feelings? What should we do with our hunger? The answer to that is going to depend partly on what your aim is in fasting, what prompted it. And one of my sets of overheads is six aims in fasting. So maybe we'll do that before we're done. But um, I think you would set your mind on that towards which you're fasting and um, meditate on it and God's ability to do it. I said last time, two weeks ago now, that the, the, I think the essence under all fasting is to take a physical longing that you are creating by denying the body food and um, transpose that physical longing into a spiritual key and say, Lord, just as... And even more than I now feel hunger for food, I long for you. And what you want is for him to manifest himself in a bunch of different ways, probably. It might be that somebody's terribly sick. My guess is right now, Rick Gamash and Delane don't feel like eating supper with their little cosette down at Children's Hospital with possible cystic fibrosis. That is something that takes your appetite away. And so I think we have lots of instances in the Bible uh, of that kind of fasting. So they would, for the time being, say, Lord, 
there's nothing we can do here, and yet we long for you to stand forth and show your power. We long for it so much, we're going to deny ourselves food and take our stomachs and turn them into longers as well. It's, it's that taking physical longing and making it bear witness to a spiritual longing. And I say bear witness to, and I would also add, add an addition to. I think sometimes we just need to fast for no particular thing except to prove that we're not living by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Well, how do you know if you're living by bread alone? Until you can see if you can deny yourself bread and then see what happens to you. And when you feel that longing and that hunger and the hand just kind of automatically reaches for a tangerine or whatever while you're walking through the kitchen, you say, what are you doing, hand? Reach up. Why are you so wired immediately to reach here? Reach up. May, and then you, you, you say, may all the hands of my heart and may all the hands of my mind be that naturally reaching up like I'm right now reaching for a cookie or reaching for milk or reaching for pop or reaching for a tangerine. Why can't I have a heart that is so wired to reach to God the same way my body is? The body and the heart are so interwoven that I think if we just build fasting into our lives in some kind of regular way, that we will learn much about our own souls. So, this little advertisement here. This coming Tuesday is the first Tuesday of the month, and it's we call it the first Tuesday fast. We, as a staff, skip our lunch that we usually eat together. We gather in the chapel. You're all welcome to come for one hour with us from 1230 to 1.30. Skip your lunch, come down, and we just sing, pray, and say to the Lord... We want you more than we want lunch today. And we want you back. We want you to come, Lord Jesus. So do whatever you have to do to set in place the second coming. Jason. Talk more about the relationship between fasting and spiritual breakthroughs. Talk more about how fasting and spiritual breakthroughs relate to each other. My guess is there's some mystery there that we don't know, but I'll make a stab at it. The, if, you, if you have my book on hunger for God, uh, what you do is just, you don't have to read that book straight through. You just bounce around in it. But the last thing I wrote, I think was about five or six pages on why does God respond to fasting? Why? I mean, are we bribing him? Is we twisting his arm? What are we doing? Why does God respond to fasting? Um, and I presume he does because the Bible holds that out to us as one of the means by which we pray. And I think the answer would go something like this. Um, when you fast in a right spirit that is not to be seen by men, you are both expressing and intensifying a longing for and a dependence on God rather than something else. And that's what God seems to respond to in the Bible. God, and that's what makes it a gracious response. In other words, if you can find a form of petition that shows more dependence on him, less dependence on you, then his response would show more of him and less of you. And that's what God's into in the universe big time. See, our whole theology here is God 
glorifies God above all things. That's his main passion. So what we're always on the lookout for is ways to live and ways to talk and ways to act that will highlight his action, not our action. Now, prayer is the main one because prayer is the saying, I'm helpless and you're the great helper. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. You see the, the dynamic there in Psalm fifty fifteen. Now, fasting simply kicks in as an intensifier as far as I... That's my best judgment. It kicks in as an expressor and an intensifier so that we really mean what we say when we say, I want you, I need you, I depend on you. And, and God does seem, at times anyway, I don't think he's limited to this, at times to make his answers dependent on the authenticity and reality and intensity of our dependence. Otherwise, I don't think we'd say things like Jeremiah 29, where it says, If you seek me with all your heart, then I will answer. With all your heart. Well, how do you, how do, you do that, I wonder? You're praying and you're, you're kind of looking at yourself in the mirror of your own soul and saying, This doesn't feel very intense. This feels kind of half-hearted this morning. What would you do? I mean, can you just push a button and say, now it's intense. Now it's with all my heart. I don't think we have that simple control over our own hearts. We, we, but we can take steps. We can meditate on promises. We can ask other people to pray for us. And we can fast. And if you fast for something then I think your own soul starts to bear witness to your soul. You really mean this, don't you? I feel that you mean this. And the body bears witness to your soul. Hey, would you please feed me? And you say, no. And the body says, why? And the answer that comes back is, I really need God. And the body says, well, I need food. And you say, well... Wait, just wait. You're not God here. That That's just an acted out dramatic way of showing how the intensification works, how the body begins to bear witness to the soul. Hey, you're serious. <laughs> you're serious about this. Give me what I want. He said, no. So I think, Jason, it has to do with the measure of authenticity and intensity with which we lean on God. That's my best effort anyway. Go ahead. Good question. What, uh, say the reference again, Psalm 62, 1. My soul waits in silence for God only. So the question is, what's the role of silence? Do you, do you always want to fill up uh, a moment of communion with God with Word, that'd be one way to ask the question anyway. Hmm. Hmm. I wonder, I, I, I haven't studied the psalm in this regard, so I don't know. I wonder if silence there means absence of meditated word, or if it doesn't mean something like, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10, be still. Be still, be quiet, stop striving, 
and know that I'm God. Maybe the word quiet there, I'd have to just check, is a bigger word than just don't let anything come out of your mouth. Maybe it's a stillness of soul. It's a, it's a gathering of your thoughts. It's a, a ceasing of frenzy. You're not running around doing things in a kind of noisy, hectic life. You've settled yourself. You've focused yourself. And maybe it's, you're not just rattling away right off the bat to God. You're stopping, shutting your mouth. Like when Jonathan Edwards died at age 54, his wife wrote a letter to their daughter and said, I put my hand on my mouth. Meaning, I mustn't say anything here because I might say something inappropriate. And she simply silences her her mouth so that we don't just blab out something. And I I would guess, I've tried this now and then, as you come to your place of prayer and your time of prayer, um, don't just run into it. Start chattering away about the need that you feel. Just get settled. Be silent for a moment. You probably should whisper at least something. Like, the Lord, I offer this silence to you. Please use it to prepare me to meet you or just something like that. And then... And then be silent. So I, I, when I stress meditation like I have been, I don't want to rule out moments of silence. I'll give you an example. I was with some pastors today for lunch, um, the Edgren Fellowship, uh, and there came a point in our discussion about an hour into it where we were not sure what to do, where to go, and some planning we were making. And so I said, why don't we just stop and uh, seek the Lord about what he might want us to do here and what he might be pleased to bring to mind that we have not yet thought of in regard to our planning. Well, now, if you, if you pray a prayer like that, you better shut up for a minute. Uh, so to say, Lord, um, we've been talking, we've been reading, we've been studying, we've been discussing, but we have blind spots and we see through a glass darkly and we may be missing entirely something important. So would you just come and uh, help us to know what way you want us to go? And I think at that moment it's very good to be still, not to uh, demand that some verse be in your mind at that moment. And so you wait and... Uh, He may well bring something to mind. I think he did. I think we made good progress after that. Um, I really believe the Lord can bring thoughts to your mind about where you lost your brooch. You know, you can just stop. Here's what I do. I don't do it often enough, and I have kicked myself for not doing it more often. I'm going to a meeting, or I'm going to an elders meeting, or I'm coming to church, or I'm running off to somewhere or on a vacation, or I've just packed up quick, I've got to run to Winnipeg for 24 hours and give two talks, and I stop at the door as I leave my study, and I say, Now, Lord, what have I forgotten? <laughs> that I'm going to be so upset with myself with on the plane. I have saved myself so much trouble by doing that. Now, what are you saying? You believe what do you believe? That there can be new revelation from God? Well... <laughs> I don't know what you're going to call it, but God can say pajamas, you know, <laughs> or toothbrush, or 
your lectures. <laughs> or, this has happened most often, the ticket. The plane ticket. Really, I, I have... I just try to, at that moment, give yourself about 30 seconds of silence. Lord, am I ready? Is there a book I ought to be putting in my briefcase? I've done that. This happened, this happened Friday. Um, and he said, why don't you take along a couple copies of Desiring God? You might meet somebody at a hotel. You might meet the maid who cleans your room and be able to leave her a book. I do that a lot. I sign books and leave them and say, Thanks for cleaning my room and leaving a free book. I, that's my best effort with silence. I'm sure I'm, I'm just nowhere near where some of you are in this issue of learning how to commune with God. So I'm just talking from where I am and take it if it's helpful and go beyond me, please. Colossians 2, 2023. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So he lists off these, verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And he says, now why are you submitting to these worldly decrees? You have died with Christ to the elementary principles, maybe that's the right translation, stoicheia of the world or the universe, why, as if still living in them, do you submit yourself to these? Now, my sense there is what that verse means is the elementary principles are a, a way of relating to God that relates to him mainly through um, rules. Don't eat. Don't taste, don't handle, don't touch. That's the way you get right with God. That's the way you maintain your rightness with God. There's these ceremonial things, or, and fasting would be one of them, perhaps. And don't eat uh, catfish because it's slimy on the outside and doesn't have scales, and etc. And those are the elementary, elementary things of the world. Why, why in the world are you still doing that, he says? These are matters which have to do, to be sure, with the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement. So there he's, he's addressing the issue of self-abasement, that is denying yourself food and severe treatment of the body, that would be possibly extended fasting, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So I think I quoted this verse in the very first page of the book. Um, the book starts by saying, beware of books on fasting and Beware of fasting. Fasting carries as many dangers, probably, as it does benefits. And this is one of them. Namely, the flesh can use fasting as much as the flesh can be subdued by fasting. Because the flesh is not, in Paul's thinking, 
only or perhaps mainly what the body feels. You read the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 following, there are things like anger and pride and divisiveness. Those aren't, that's not body stuff, that's soul stuff. So the flesh are those outcroppings of the human heart that aren't reliant upon God and aren't manifestations of the Spirit. And he says, fasting per se is not going to fix that. In fact, it might deepen it. Because you can boast in fasting big time, which is why Jesus had to warn against doing it in front of people, right? In, in Matthew 6, those folks were fasting to be seen by men, which means it was pure flesh. So, I take those verses not to be a wholesale condemnation of fasting, but one of those great warnings that outward things... And it can be anything. It can be Bible reading. It can be prayer. You can boast in prayer. You can stand on the street corner and pray long prayers to be seen by men, Jesus said. It can be preaching. It can be the clothes you wear. It, it can be all kinds of spiritual disciplines or other things. We are capable of turning every human act into a sin. I mean that. It's a carefully thought through thought. We are capable of turning every single human act, act, meaning what you do with your body, into a sin. And so I take it as a warning, not a condemnation. And the reason I don't take it as a, a, a complete condemnation that all, all things you would do severe with the body just play into the flesh is because other places Paul and Jesus talk about self-denial, denying yourself and and, and self-discipline. The, the, the last fruit of the Holy Spirit is ankritia. How does it translate? What's the last fruit of the Holy Spirit? Self-control. That's a, that's a sex word in Paul's vocabulary. I think it has implications for other kinds of self-control, but ankritia in Greek meant mainly continence. Able not to have sex when you shouldn't. Don't do stuff with your brain that you shouldn't. So... Um, there, there are things that you should do bodily that put governors on desires, whether food desires or sex desires. Remember what Paul said, I will not be enslaved by anything. That was in the context of food in 1 Corinthians 6. I will not be enslaved by anything. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. God is going to destroy both in hell. And he says, you're free to eat, you're free not to eat, but don't be enslaved. So, I think self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, but it's got to be a fruit of the Spirit, which is what Col Colossians says it might not be. It might be a thing you boast in, etc. So, that's my... another way. Okay. Say something about duration of fasting. You mean fasting? Is it something to be... Uh, Strived for. Um, I don't know how you decide that. I know of nothing in the Bible that would uh, tell you that a 40-day fast is better than a 28-day fast or a 7-day fast or a 24-hour or a fast. Um, you have models. You have models, and that is, illustrations in the Bible. Jesus, 40 days. Moses, 40 days. 
Um, what other what other examples are there in the Bible? There's seven day. What? Esther. Esther three days. And there's different ones. So should we should we in our spiritual lives between now and when we die, should we be moving towards a longer period? Uh, so that the idea would be everybody would do a 40-day fast before they were done. Got a question about that? Can you help me with it, Ken? Depends on how you define it, doesn't it? So let me say a word about that. Ken said you can't imagine anybody fasting 40 days. Well, <laughs> they do it, and they do it a lot. But probably most of them drink juice. Um juice fast. Very, very, very few people go 40 days on water. You can't go 40 days without water. Well, a miracle. Um, and God has done that, I think. But you can do 40 days with juice. You'd lose a lot of weight, but you could do it. There's a lot of people who do it. I mean, there are people in Korea who do it all the time. Um, but back to the question. Is it something to be pursued um, I don't feel any impulse to do a 40-day fast myself at this time in my life. And I think one of the reasons, um, and here judge the temperature of my own spirituality, is that it would be so incredibly disruptive to about a thousand things in my life. Um, it would be hard to be a, it would be hard to be a family member if you never ate with your family for 40 days. Uh, and it would be hard to be with staff. It would be hard to travel. It would be hard to just do a lot of things. Now, that's, those can be overcome. Clearly, people do. The question is, can you accomplish the same thing by do, skipping one or two meals a day as opposed to, say, a two- or three-day fast? I don't know. I don't know. I think the Lord... Uh, We'll, we'll probably, if, if, you, if you go to the Lord, if we all go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm willing on any given issue like a, a lost loved one or a sick daughter or $9 million to be given in the church or whatever, what would you have me do by way of denying myself food in order to seek you with greater intensity? And I'll bet if we all did that, we'd all come up with a whole bunch of different strategies, probably about 250 different strategies in this room. Um, and, and they would all be good, and they would all be blessed by the Lord, and we shouldn't point our finger and say, oh, you didn't do the three-day thing. Or So let me just hold out to you wherever you are. I'm sure there are people in this room who have never fasted a day in your life. Last thing on your agenda is to... Fast, And so let me just hold out to you that, that you do contemplate another step. Let's just all do that, okay? You who've been three weeks fasting or 40, any of you done a 40-day fast? I won't ask anybody to raise their hand. That's not biblical. Um, but just probably don't go beyond 40 days. You've, you've reached where you need to go. <laughs> but wherever you've arrived, take one more step. At least ask the Lord if you should, which would mean... Um, you know, the, the easiest kind of fast to do, at least for me anyway, is um, a, a day. It's a 24-hour thing where you, um, you eat supper 
and you go to bed, and you don't eat again until supper. I'm breakfast and lunch. Good night. That's no big deal. Uh, and if it is a big deal, metaphys- metaphysically, that's not the right word, metabolically, whatever the word is, physically for you, then you, you, you say, all right, I'll do what I can do. And I'm the kind of person that if I don't have apple juice every hour, I get sick. I can remember one time, I'll just be honest with you here, it was a prayer week and I was, I was fasting and I had to speak to the young people on fasting on Wednesday night and I had started on Sunday. And I got so sick, nauseous, uh, on, on Wednesday afternoon that I was in the pastor's office up there heaving these dry, awful heaves and sweating like a loon and I had to speak in about ten minutes to these teenagers. And, uh, well, I learned what my body is capable of and what it's not. And I don't press it anymore. I drink juice when I'm fasting. And so, go ahead, uh, Justin. Yeah, good question. Say something about fasting on things other than food. Very important. I got an email a few years ago when I was preaching on this from a woman. So helpful. She said, I'm a diabetic or something like that. And uh, my doctor has said, don't ever do that. And, uh, and so I have joined in. We were, we were asking for f- uh, the fasting 40 that year. You remember that? We, every month, was it a month? I think every month we published a different card and we said we'd like 40 people in Bethlehem to fast one meal a day for that month. And you are the fasting 40. You represent our, us as a church. And I forget just what we were fasting toward that year, but it was significant. Well, she wanted to be a part of that, and she said, I'm going to do television. And I said, that is perfectly legitimate. Find the thing that you lean on. What do you lean on? All of us lean on food. But there are other things we lean on that we also could test how unhealthily and spiritually inappropriately we lean on them by denying them for a season. So it might be a week, no TV, or, or, or every night, skip that How to Make a Million Dollars, or whatever that show is, that, that Matt watches all the time. Yeah, he wants the building fund to be healthy. I've heard that before. Anybody that goes to the casino for the building fund, you're fired. We don't take that money. Television. Anybody want to give a little testimony here? I mean, I'm, I'm, my mind is uh, about other things that that you have found it helpful to target as a a discipline in your life to say no to that for a season. I mean, that's what Lent is all about, right? You can choose to think. Go ahead. That's interesting. Okay. Driving. Walk. I think that's a good idea. If you live as close as I do, especially, get out of your car, for goodness sakes. Huh. I hadn't thought of that one. If you lean on people too much. Hmm. Another question. 
I think that's perfectly legitimate, if, especially if you can't miss food because of medical reasons. And please, don't feel you're spiritually inferior or something if that's the case. There's no, nothing sacred about that form of denial. The, the principle is, do you want more of God enough to be without something that you would ordinarily lean on? Where's the hand? Okay. What do you do when you're fasting and you get to the place of pain and anger? When I was referring to that, let me make sure I'm understanding you. Um, my, my reference to anger and having a short fuse, you remember I said, was not anger towards God, though that may come out, but just towards cabinets that get in the way. Or clutches that aren't working, or door that won't, you can't turn the lock. My office has a door that you try to turn and, you know, that's bad. Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards had a resolution. He said it is sin to get angry at an inanimate object. <laughs> There's no moral quality to indict here. This lock is not in your face. If this key isn't turning, God's doing that. Not the law. Don't kick this door. That's sin. But you're, you're more serious than this. Your, your question is, if the anger and the pain are there, what do you do with it? Well, I think you, you measure the degree of pain probably. And like I did, nausea. I'm not going to ruin my week. I mean, why, why be sick all week, right? Um, if your, your aim is to get your mind clear to pray and bless people, you don't want to be in the bathroom all week long. So I think you back up and you find what you can do. Apple juice, orange juice, or whatever, one glass every meal, or something like that. So that, that, if that's what you mean by pain, I would say don't push yourself beyond what would be healthy or useful for your life. With regard to the anger, that's just real good for us to be, have that exposed in our lives. The Bible talks about putting away anger. So there are steps you can take, I think, to actually assault the anger in your life. You need a probe to see what the roots of it are. What is going on in my life? Why have I got so much anger? It is a huge problem, by the way. We, had, we did a men's retreat a few years ago, and we had a little survey and hand-raising. And just so you know, I think anger was above lust in the problems that these men had. There's a lot of anger in the world. A lot of anger. And the reason there's a lot of anger is because there's a lot of frustration. Things don't go your way. Things don't go with your spouse. Things don't go with your kids. Things don't go with your job. Things don't go your way with your health. Things don't go your way with church. Just you, you walk through the day and nothing's going your way. And every time something doesn't go your way, there's this, there's this sense of... Tension that rises and, and, and it becomes a bitterness and anger. And the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on that. Don't let the sun go down on that. And the next phrase is, don't give place to the devil. So if you're, if you've got a lot of anger and it starts showing itself during fasting, you've got to develop some strategies to pull the plug on that anger. And there's a bunch of strategies to use. There's not just one. I'll mention, see what comes to mind here. I'll just mention a few. One, if the anger 
is being directed towards a person who's sinning against you. At work, they're always sinning against you. Or a spouse who's abused your kids or something just, there's been sins against you, your parents or whatever. Romans 12, it's about 18, and 1 Peter 2, about 21 or 2 or 3. Both of those texts say, uh, do not avenge yourself, give place to wrath. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So what does that little phrase, give place to wrath, mean? Give place to wrath. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. I think there's a psychological dynamic that by faith you're able to take anger against legitimate sins against you and give place to God's wrath by saying, God, this is wrong. I am being treated wrong here. I am being let down wrongly here. But I know you have told me not to return evil for evil, but to bless and not to curse I feel very much like cursing right now, and I feel very much like vengeance in some form or another, but I will now consciously take this anger and give it to you and trust, trust you to do whatever should be done with it for justice sake. I do believe that's possible. And it says in Peter, that was Romans, in Peter it says, he when he was reviled, did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he handed over to him who judges justly. And the, many translations say he handed himself over. That's not what it says. It just says he handed over to him who judges justly. And the context is real clear. He's being reviled, natural human tendency, spit back, hit back. S get the last word here. He's suffering. Mm. At least feel angry towards this person instead of saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So what did he do with it? He's human. He's being sinned against. It's not wrong to feel indignation about that. People shouldn't sin against you. What do you do with it? Answer, he handed over to him who judges justly. I think on the cross, Jesus, when he... Well, just walk with him through, you know, everything, the... The, when they pressed that thing down in his head. I mean, just if somebody were to walk up to you with long two-inch thorns. I've seen thorn bushes that aren't like stickers I grew up with in South Carolina. If somebody were to put that on your head and then hit you with a rod, one of those would go in about three-quarters of an inch. And at that moment, you just want to hit them. I mean, it's just a, it's just a, a reaction. Or you want to say, quit that, or... Curse you, you whitewash wall, or something like that. What, do you, what, do you, what, can, what can control that? What can release that? And I think what Jesus did at every point along the way, just like he did in Gethsemane, is say, when that happened, he whispered quietly, Oh, God, take it. Do with it whatever you have to do. And give me a spirit of meekness here. I must maintain my lamb-like substitutionary sinlessness here. Oh God, take it and do whatever you need to do. Now when he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. God had given him a grace that was a step beyond I hand over to you their judgment. So judge him. 
He handed over their judgment, and then he asked that the judgment be a certain thing, which is the most gracious thing imaginable. So my, my first strategy is simply to say that one, one strategy is a conscious, faith-based handing over. Um, that, that may sound naive to you, but I can testify that it works, and it works in a lot of other areas. It works in lust, sexual temptation. You can learn to take those thoughts, men and women here. Women have different kinds of thoughts and fantasies, but they've got their own issues here. And men, and you can, as soon as one comes into your head, you can perform that same thing. You can say, no, no, right out loud, or you can say it to the brain, no, you will not occupy my brain and my thought process here for the next two minutes, no. And you consciously say, take it, Lord. And then you very consciously direct your mind toward a superior satisfaction or some other thing that would be valuable to you. Um, let me say one other thing. Second strategy. That's a forward-looking strategy. That's a future grace strategy. A backward grace strategy is Romans, I mean, uh, Ephesians 4.32. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Meditate when you get angry on how you have been forgiven. I think that's probably as powerful or more than the other one. So here you are getting angry that this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened against you. Take those and measure those against what you have done that were so bad Jesus had to die. And then look at him dying. Look at him dying and see if you can emotionally muster the same anger towards these offenses against you when he's dying to rescue you from offenses against him. The cross is the bottom line key to this issue of anger. Those are two strategies, and there are more, but uh, let's go another direction. This will be the last question, then we'll stop. Um, what I can say is this, regularly, let's just say regularly, I think of Romans 8.32, because it's just sort of my warp and woof favorite verse. Um, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things, meaning all the answers to our prayers, plus lots more. So every answer to prayer that I plead for is owing to the Father not sparing the Son. Now let me just say one other thing about that, and then we'll dismiss. Know what you mean when you close your prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Know what you mean. And that's what you mean. The reason we pray in Jesus' name, amen, it bothers me when people end their prayers without saying that. I mean, I, I usually cut them stack and say, they usually say it, and they mean it, and they didn't feel like they had to toss those words in. Frankly, I think they're very important words.
to say out loud and to mean in a certain way. Namely, when you say, give us this day our daily bread, in Jesus' name, amen, you mean, I don't deserve daily bread. Jesus deserves daily bread, and in his name, I'm putting the check on the table. He signed the check. I'm writing the check for food, and he signed it with his blood. That's what you mean by in Jesus' name. You don't deserve one thing you ask God for, except hell. If you get anything better than hell, Jesus bought it for you. And therefore, when you end your prayer, you should say, in his name and for his sake and for his glory and because he died and because of his worth, not my worth. So I think even though we may not have in our heads some verses, that little phrase at the end, in Jesus' name, ought to carry a megaton of freight, which is what, so if you have children, get this into their heads early. That's not a throwaway phrase. Jesus died so that you could pray to the Father and not be squished like a bug, but be received like a child. And the child-father relationship is, of course, the basis of a lot of prayer teaching in the, in the Bible. And we, our, our adoption was bought by the blood of Jesus. So when we, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying, I'm your child. I have an approach. I can come boldly. I have a high priest because of the blood. That's a good place to stop. Let's pray. So here we are doing it, Lord. Just one more time, and we just want to do it all night long. We want to be a people who pray without ceasing. And you've said, come boldly. Let's come boldly to the throne of grace. Because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens and one who's been tempted in every point like as we are yet without sin. And he's a high priest because he carries blood into the temple. And the blood he carries is his own blood and not the blood of bulls and goats. And so when we say in his name, in his name, Father, in the name of our high priest, in the name of our sacrifice, we mean in the name of Jesus who loved us and died for us and bought our access and bought our answers. Oh, Lord, let all of our praying be the exaltation of Jesus, I pray. In Christ's name, in Jesus' name, because of his worth, because of his purchase, because of his righteousness, because of his Shed blood. Amen.